Crazy Chester Radio Hour. Thanks for tuning in. My guest today is my good friend Gary Talley. Gary is the guitarist of the Box Tops, the legendary band known for classics like The Letter, Cry Like a Baby, Choo Choo Train and Soul Deep. Gary has also recorded or performed live with Willie Nelson, Dobie Gray, Tammy Wynette, Waylon Jennings, Billy Preston and Sam Moore of Sam and Dave. His songs have been recorded by Keith Whitley, James Cotton, and Chi Shepard, and he's also known as a guitar instructor whose tutorials have been published by Acoustic Guitar Magazine and American Songwriter Magazine. Gary, welcome to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. Thanks for being my guest today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Gary, uh, let's go back to the beginning. You, you grew up in Memphis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What are some of your earliest memories of music around you? Well, um, when I was in grade school, there was a guy named Captain Glisson, and he played a silver tone guitar, and he was a he was a in the Memphis Police Department, and he would come and play for the morning assemblies at school uh, for some reason. Uh, and I wanted a silver tone guitar just like he had. It was in the Sears Roebuck catalog, and uh, and my dad, of course, he played guitar, and uh, he was into country music, and uh, my mom was more. They both played in church and played all the old hymns and stuff like that, and. Um, so I knew all those songs from way back, you know, and uh, uh, my mother played piano and my dad played guitar. So we they were always playing around the house and uh, I just thought that everybody did that, kind of. I thought everybody played and sang all the time, you know, because that's what my parents did. And then... Uh, then then I got then I heard Captain Glisson play a silver tone guitar and it was like I wanted one of those and uh and a little later on uh I would listen to the radio and they had these two black stations WDIA and WLOK uh and I loved what was happening there you know I listened to BB King and Howlin' Wolf and people like that and uh so I just liked different kinds of music, and um, I got a guitar. My dad got me a silver tone guitar, and uh, he taught me how to. He got me started playing, and uh, when I was in high school, and uh, our high school band, our local band was Booker T and the MGs. I mean, that was. <laughs> I heard them play. They were like the guys from the hood, you know. And uh, I went to the same high school that Steve Cropper and Duck Dunn went to, Messick High School. And uh, so I, I heard all this great music, and I wanted to I wanted to play it, you know. And uh, and the Beatles came on Ed Sullivan, and there was a whole new thing, you know. And it was just uh, music everywhere, and I wanted to play like B.B. King and I wanted to play like George Harrison and I wanted to play like uh, you know it was just uh, the ventures gosh it was just yeah. a, everything so the guitar was always your instrument then yeah That's yeah and there was a piano in the house my whole life and I never learned how to play it but uh, but I was just drawn to the guitar 
And then my, later on, my dad got me a music, uh, a duo sonic, a Fender duo sonic. And that was, uh, I just never will forget the way new guitars smelled, you know, and the cases and everything. Yeah. It was just a, just so, uh, it was just great. I just loved the whole, everything about guitars, the way they looked and the way they sounded and look at the Fender catalog and then I wanted a Stratocaster for years. Just I would play a, a Stratocaster on the way home from school. There was a music store named Burl Oldswingers, and I would get the Stratocasters, you know, the in the store and just sit around and play them and think maybe someday I'll have a Stratocaster, you know. <laughs> and yeah. um, and then I got the next guitar I got was a Telecaster and I started playing in these local bands like we had a band called the In Crowd and uh, named after the Dobie Gray song. Yeah. And uh, I never dreamed I would play with Dobie Gray someday at the time, you know. And uh, it was just uh, a wonderful time to be around, you know. There was so much music in Memphis of all kinds, you know, there was blues and R and BB, R and BB, BB King, and uh, and then the country music. You know, my dad listened to country music, and I heard Chet Atkins and so many influences. Yeah. So from there, and playing in bands in high school, how did you get hooked up with what the box tops became? Well, the box tops started out as a band called Ronnie and the DeVilles. And Ronnie Jordan was the lead singer and he got replaced by Alex Chilton. And then when I joined the band, it was the DeVilles, still the DeVilles. And uh, our manager, a guy named Roy Mack, was the guy who had also managed the Gentries and they had cut Keep Keep On Dancing, which was a, I guess it was a hit in some parts of the country. You know, I don't think it got on the national charts that high. But anyway, so it was a thing like we wanted to, to be like the Gentries and make a record, you know. And um, so Roy Mack uh, had us go to... Uh, American Studios, which was owned by Chips Moman and and uh, and the Dan Penn, I'll never forget Dan Penn. You know, produced the letter, yeah. and Wayne Carson wrote it. And uh, the first time I saw Dan, he was wearing he had cigarettes rolled up in his. He was wearing Bermuda shorts, and he had his cigarettes rolled up in his. T-shirt and he was wearing a little funny hat and everything and and he he uh, one of the uh, guys in the band John Evans the keyboard player he didn't have a driver's license yet and his mother brought him to the studio and uh, and uh, Dan Penn was drinking a beer and and he kicked his beer under the couch when he saw when he saw John's mother come in. It was just one of those funny things. Yeah. Was that your first experience in the recording studio? Well, no, because uh, most of the local bands, including the in crowd, recorded at a place called Sonic. And there was a guy uh, named Roland Janes that played on a lot of the early rockabilly sessions. Yeah. And so... Most, uh, just about everybody in Memphis, their first experience in the studio was at Sonic and Roland James. Yeah, uh, I think Travis Womack told me the same thing. Uh -huh. I think some of his very early recordings when he was like 12 years old, he would do there. Yeah. And uh, so... Um, so with the in crowd, you got to record there? Yeah, with the in crowd, we recorded a couple of, I think we recorded a couple of Motown songs or something. We had a really good singer named Tony Kane, and and 
I wish I knew what happened in those those songs are on reel to reel somewhere there's on <laughs> but uh anyway so just about everybody in Memphis went to yeah went to Sonic so did they ever get released at all those early sides you cut there no no they never did we just you know the reason we cut them was so we could be on dance party the local it was a guy named George Klein who was a friend of Elvis yeah and uh and uh, we had to have something to lip sync to when we were on a dance party. That's why we cut a couple of songs. And uh, one was a Motown song, and the other one was For Your Love by the Yardbirds. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so, but then you were in the studio cutting the leather with Dan Penn, and that became a huge hit. Yeah, it was... Uh, really amazing because when uh, we were on the road and it kept going up the charts and we were just shocked it was like gosh we it hit number one while we were on the road and we couldn't believe it it was like it was just too good to be true it was like we couldn't we couldn't grasp it you know that we were just this little band of teenagers and and all of a sudden we had the number one record in the country and it was uh, uh, pretty amazing and uh, it kept going up the charts you know and uh, well well it got to number one and stayed there for like four weeks or something like that and uh, we would play you know, and none of us had been playing music for very long, you know. I was 19, and I was the oldest guy in the band. And Alex was 16, the lead singer. And uh, I remember playing in a, a place in Virginia, and the opening band was a local local band of guys that were, you know, much older than us. We were, They were in their 30s, and they were... They were seasoned musicians, you know, and we were just thinking, this is crazy <laughs> because these guys are so much better than us, but we've got the number one record in the country, you know. Uh, and we, I, I think sometimes I learned how to play guitar in the box tops, you know, uh, because um, that was three years of constant touring and... Uh, You know, a lot of times we would uh, be on the road, and Reggie and, and and Gene and all the guys, Tommy would would cut the basic tracks, and we'd come in and sing on them and stuff, like "Cry Like a Baby." That was Reggie on electric sitar, and uh, and uh, so we were we were just on the road like crazy, and we got to meet. We got to meet our musical heroes, you know, like meeting Jimi Hendrix was just like a big deal. Uh, I'd never heard anything like Jimi Hendrix when, when he came out. And uh, and we played on shows with, uh, gosh, just about everybody that had a record out at the time, you know. And uh, I remember I bought a 68 GTO from a friend of mine <laughs> And uh, I just went uh, through, well, we, we played every state in the Union, and we we played every, well, we didn't play in Hawaii, but uh, we, uh, we played in Canada a lot. We just covered North America, and we, in 69, we had this trip to London, which was uh, something we'd always wanted to do, you know. And uh, we went to London, and uh, we went to a, a rehearsal, and there was this reggae band called King Ollie and the Raisins, and we they were going to be our opening band. And they were a bunch of Jamaican guys, you know, and... Uh, their equipment that we were supposed to play was like toy stuff. It was uh, like the drum kit was like something you would buy 
it it sears for your eight year old with a like a palm tree on the the bass drum head and and uh, the uh, the Leslie cabinet for the organ was broken and every time the speaker would turn around it would whack the inside of the cabinet and make a sound like a an old washing machine or something like that and uh, the uh, the guitar amps were were like PA heads they weren't even real guitar amps and uh and we just said well we can't play on this stuff you know this is our first this is our big debut in europe and we can't play on this really bad equipment and so we uh, we got on the phone with our manager and the english promoter was named arthur house he was a big promoter and uh we said we're not going to do it and he wouldn't get us you know, he wouldn't get the amps that were specified in our rider, and and, uh, and he wouldn't even get us professional gear, you know. And uh, so we we canceled the tour, but we stayed in London for two weeks and had a great time. And uh, we saw Bonnie and Delaney play with, uh, with Clapton and George Harrison sitting in with them in this place called Croydon. And... Uh, I met some buskers in the in the tube station, you know, the underground, yeah. that had made a record called Clockwork Man, and they had cut it at EMI at Abbey Road Studios, and they wanted me to put a guitar uh, part on it, and so I got to go to Abbey Road Studios and do a uh, do a guitar overdub on this record. And, and I went and sat in every seat in the whole place in all three studios just so I would know that I sat in a place where the Beatles had sat. And uh, we, uh, the record got to about number 30 on the British charts, but, but I was just blown away by getting to be, you know, where the Beatles recorded. And I just sort of, you go around like, and you touch everything, it's like, Gosh, the Beatles were here, and they sat in this chair, or they sat in this chair. And uh, anyway, that was fun. It was it was a big deal. And uh, but in 1970, we were really tired of being on the road, and we were just getting really sick and worn out. And so Alex decided he was going to quit, and then. I quit too at the same time Alex did in February of 1970. And um, then I did studio work at a studio called Sounds of Memphis. And uh, the only, we recorded a lot of people, but the only people who, who had any kind of a name were Ace Cannon and uh, and um, let's see, who else did we? Uh, did you got? work with Hank Ballard there? Uh, no, that was in Atlanta. Uh, but uh, uh, what? Billy Lee well, Riley, man. Billy, yeah, Billy Lee Riley. That's who I was trying to think of. We did a record on Billy Lee Riley, and we did one on. Uh, did you work with Jerry Butler there too? Yeah, that was at a different studio with uh, Universal Studio. Uh, but did a record with uh, Jerry Butler and uh, one on uh, Marsha Moore. Uh, and um, we did a lot of a lot of different things, but those are the only artists that I remember that were, you know, that were well-known okay. artists. Um, and then um, I moved to Atlanta in the 70s and uh, there was a studio called Doppler that did a lot of jingles and, and I did uh, McDonald's and Dodge vans and uh, Coca-Cola stuff and a lot of jingles for different things and worked with Paul Davis uh, and uh, Sammy Johns, the guy that did Chevy Van. Uh, 
and played a lot of live work and a lot of conventions and tuxedo gigs and played played a big thing that was sponsored by the NBA and met Muhammad Ali and uh, Jimmy the Greek and uh, Howard Cosell and uh, let's see Phil Walton and Bill Russell, like Wilt Chamberlain, all these famous basketball players and yeah. sports figures, and and the Russian Olympic team with, uh, I think it was Olga Corbett, that was the big Olympic star, and just I did it. I did a a gig with Pat Boone, and then I, I did gigs with Tennessee Ernie Ford when he would come to town, to Atlanta, and. Uh, he liked to use me because I could do steel guitar licks on guitar, and and uh, I guess that was something that some of the other guitar players didn't do or something. But but I always got to play with Tennessee Ernie Ford when he came to town. How long uh, were you in Atlanta? Ten years, nineteen seventy one through nineteen eighty. Well, nine and a half years, and uh, I played with John Phillips of the Mamas and Papas. And uh, Sandler and Young, which were was this duo that would, uh, yeah. So a lot of a lot of miscellaneous gigs. You know, people would come to town and play at some ballroom, someplace. Or um, did you already write songs at that time, or did they come later? It really came later. I would, I would make up little bits of instrumental things, you know, about that time, and I never, I never, quite wrote a song that, that was a, finished all the way through. You know, I'd write little bits of things, but um, but Chip's moment got me to move to Nashville, in. 81. Was that around the same time he relocated here from Memphis? Uh, yeah. Yeah, he, he, he opened up a studio just right around the corner from here, as a matter of fact, on, was it East Iris or West Iris, but, but he called it American Studios, you know, and, um, he was producing Willie and Waylon and all this cool stuff and I got to play on uh, the first thing I did when I moved to town was play on a Tammy Wynette album that that Chips produced and then I played on a um, that's Willie and Willie was doing duets with everybody and he did a, a duet with um, let's see who else did he do a duet with uh, I'm drawing a blank now but uh, Webb Pierce, that's who I was trying to think of, Webb Pierce. And, uh, and I played on one song on that. And then when they cut Always On My Mind, I was hanging around the studio, you, you know, and Reggie and the guys, Memphis guys, played on that. And uh, one of the writers of the song... Uh, Let's see. Mark James. Let's see. It was Mark and James Wayne and Wayne and Tommy. Boy, his name escapes me. He used to play rhythm for Chips all the time. Yeah, Johnny Christopher. Johnny Christopher, sure. So Johnny Christopher didn't show up, and I wound up singing backup on "Always on My Mind" on the single, you know. So that was fun. Just, it just. I was just hanging around, not expecting to be doing anything, and and uh, and I played a little bit on the WW2, Willie and Waylon WW2 album, and uh, let's see. Uh, I heard I heard a story that always on my mind. I guess Waylon was supposed to sing that with Willie, but he he didn't want to or something like that oh maybe so I, didn't, I don't know I if didn't that's know just that. a rumor or if that's actually true but yeah uh, that's I what I heard know. yeah I don't know either 
then I played on a Hank Cochran album that never got released that we cut at Willie's studio in Perdinalis that Chips built for him, basically. Uh, and, a, and a Lone Star beer jingle that Willie was on. And uh, then I was doing a lot of live stuff uh, playing with different bands and I got on a, a tour with this guy's named the Thrasher Brothers from Birmingham. Yeah, I know them. Yeah, and they opened the tour. They were the opening act for the Salem Spirit Tour with Alabama. So we went and did these big tours with Alabama. Uh, and Juice Newton was on some of the dates and Johnny Lee and Mickey Gilly were on some of the dates. But but Alabama was like the biggest thing in the world at the time. It was like playing with the Rolling Stones or something. Uh, they would sell out these huge coliseums. And, uh, and then, uh, well, did mostly the same stuff and started teaching guitar and writing songs about the same time I moved to Nashville. Uh, so um, I made this DVD called Guitar Playing for Songwriters. And uh, I would do workshops for the NSAI and people like that. And yeah. even did a, did a guitar workshop in Australia and got to be in Australia for like, how many weeks were we there? About a month. And, and did guitar workshops and in different cities in Australia. That was really fun. Yeah. And and you your columns have been published in the Acoustic Guitar magazine and the American Songwriter magazine. Yeah. Was that an extension of you doing that D V D or how did that come kind about? Kind of, yeah. It it probably was because uh I figured that I had a well, a unique approach to teaching songwriters and people that are more interested in uh, than in putting songs together and chord progressions and rhythms than like playing hot lead stuff you know so um yeah i did a thing with acoustic guitar magazine and then i wrote a column for american songwriter for gosh over 10 years 10 or 12 years i guess um and then I started teaching guitar on Skype and and have, I've taught, well, I've got, I've had students in Australia and Germany and miscellaneous places. And then the box tops got back together. Was that the mid-90s? It was 96. And you guys ended up making a record too and one of, of your originals got cut on that album too. Yeah, Last Laugh was uh, we recorded one of my songs that I wrote with Richard Fleming on there, and um, um, so that was that was really fun. Uh, how, how did that reunion come about? Well, Alex had said some things in the press about the box tops that were less than complimentary so we didn't think he would ever want to do it again but it turns out Alex said he would do it and uh, Bill Cunningham the bass player is the one that got the band together and started calling everybody and he said well why don't we go in the studio and just record something and if we don't like it we'll just burn it you know uh, <laughs> just throw it away just to just see what happens, and uh, and so we went to Easley Recording in in Memphis, which used to be a sister studio called Onyx, a sister studio of American. You know, it was built at the same time by the same people. Anyway, um, so we did this album, and we called it Tear Off, and we did some old R and B songs, and uh, we did. Um, um, I'm in love by Wilson Pickett. We did. Um, let's see. We did one of those old James Carr songs. 
that wasn't uh, not Dark End of the Street, but another one. Uh, what we did, um, uh, what's the name of that song? Big Bird, you know, that Eddie, Eddie Floyd Eddie had Floyd. cut. And we did uh, Roy Head's, uh, why am I forgetting the name of that song? But it's a tree to write. Tree to write. Yeah, and uh, well, anyway, we had a great time cutting it, and uh, it it was real kind of. We hadn't played together in years, and a couple of guys hadn't played much at all, and 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 I had mixed feelings about releasing it, you know, because I felt like it was kind of sloppy and kind of mm, not real professional I guess but uh, but everybody else wanted to release it and uh, and it was there was some good stuff on there it was kind of erratic I thought uh, but uh, the only guy that Alex would do a deal with was a guy named Patrick Matei in France, who everybody else thought was the biggest crook in, in Europe, you know. So we did a gig with him because that's the only person Alex would would uh, do a record deal with. And so the record never really was heard at all anywhere outside of France. And... Uh, we never got a royalty statement or anything, you know, it was just, uh, it just sort of went out there and in the ozone, you know, and nobody ever really heard it too much. But there's some, couple of things on it that I, that I like. Uh, anyway, but, but what came of that is, was, okay, well, we did a record, maybe we should, we should play a gig, you know, so we decided we'd do one gig and uh, we did the House of Blues in L.A. And uh, and Dan Aykroyd came to hear us, which was uh, pretty cool. Uh, but I didn't think we, you know, we we didn't sound that good, I think, at that point. It took us a few gigs to get to where we were actually sounding good. And uh, But then it sort of kind of started coming together little by little, and... Uh, and we started touring, and um, we kept touring until Alex died in 2010, and then we quit. And then two years ago, we just, Bill and I talked about starting the band up again, and we I, Bill and I did a session for a guy who... Uh, gosh, I forgot the guy's name now. But um, anyway, some guy that we'd never heard of before, you know, not a, not a known artist. But anyway, so Bill decided to give it a chance, and um, we did a couple of rehearsals, and we hired a really great drummer, Ron Krasinski, who lives here, and Barry Walsh, who we used on keyboard even back in the the early 2000s. And then, um, you know, we didn't really know if it would work without Alex, and uh, it seemed to seemed to work okay. You know, people liked it, and uh, and we felt like we sounded pretty good, and uh, so we've been touring again for a couple of years, and we did the. Um, Happy Together tour with the Turtles and the Association and the Cow Sills and uh, Chuck Negron and uh, Ron Dante from the Archies. We did that in the summer of last year, 2017, and that was about the most fun I've ever had. My, it was just great. Just great fun. Yeah. Now, uh, we mentioned the letter earlier and cry like a baby and the box tops continue to have a 
signals that chart, including choo-choo train, mm -hmm. soldie. And what are some of your favorite songs to play in the, in the box tops repertoire? Uh, I love playing Cry Like a Baby because I get to play the electric sitar on that. And that's always fun. And uh, I just like that song. I think Dan and Spooner Oldham wrote that. And, and uh, it's just such a... Everything they did in, in Dan's production, too, was just so unique. Uh, and... Um, but I think that's probably my favorite, my favorite one. It's also hear. funny. I've heard both Spooner and Dan talk about them coming up with the songs and not coming up with material for you guys' session. But uh -huh. then finally, I guess Spooner said, I could cry like a baby. And then Dan was, what was that, Spooner? And he said, I could cry like a baby. And said, that's it. Yeah. And they went over <laughs> to the studio and wrote the song. Yeah. So I like that story. But besides the box tops, you did some some other projects as artists too. You did two albums with uh Fred James and Joe Funderburg around here mm -hmm. uh as uh Fish Heads and Rice. Yeah, that how, was a how really did fun that band. come come about? Well, Fred I don't know, he made the initial contact with uh Appaloosa. A record label called Appaloosa in Milan, and um, so he uh, he produced the first record, and we came here to Creative and did it. And uh, David James, Fred's brother, was the lead singer and bass player. He's a really good singer, kind of has a Joe Cockery sounding voice. And Stuart Brower on drums, and Walter. Uh, Walter, I forgot his last name. <laughs> That's crazy. It was on keyboards, uh, and I played guitar. And uh, we did some some of my songs, and some uh, we co-wrote some songs, and we did uh, um, some. We wrote a song that got recorded by uh, James Cotton. James Cotton, yeah, uh, and. Uh, I wrote a couple more that got recorded by uh, Kenny Neal and Carrie Bell, and some you know some blues guys. Um, yeah. But anyway, so Fish Heads and Rice, uh, we had a great time. It was an Italian record label, so we went over to Italy, and we did two records for Appaloosa, and. Um, Gosh, we went to Italy several times, and in Germany also, but mostly Italy. And um, I just loved going to Italy and playing. It was so much fun. And people over there knew the letter. You know, they knew the box top stuff. So I would always do that. Um, and we had a... In, in fact, we cut a different version of Cry Like a Baby with Fish Heads and Rice, too. Um, but um, that was really fun. And uh, I made some good friends over there in uh, Italy and Switzerland. And uh, But I, I went to Europe with several people, actually, with Ray Vega, who was on BMG. Uh, we did a tour with Paul Young, and that was fun. We did a tour of Germany with him, and that was uh, in, yeah, I want to say 98, I don't know, something like that. Uh, anyway, I've done some miscellaneous gigs where I wound up getting to go to Europe like some of the country artists I played with in uh, in the 80s like I played with Johnny Lee and Shelley West and Bobby Bear and um, got to do some really fun touring and got to go to Europe a lot yeah you also uh, made an album as Manfinati how oh did, yeah how did that come about well Richard Fleming and I started writing Richard's a really good writer. He writes a lot of blues stuff. And uh, 
So Richard was playing in a band called the Hypnotics. And uh, and I had been writing songs. Well, the first one of the first songs I wrote, I co-wrote with uh, Kim Morrison, and it was called Flying Colors, and Keith Whitley recorded that. Uh, and, though, and I was writing uh, for... Uh, a guy named Chuck Neese who had a co-publishing deal with Warner Chapel, and I co-wrote some with John Gerard, who was a great, great country songwriter, and uh, got a song recorded by T.G. Shepard, who was pretty big in the 80s. Uh, anyway, but Richard Fleming and I uh, started writing songs, and then we decided we would do uh, do a record and so we went in this little demo studio uh, the place where we cut our demos and and uh, called the Gator Hole it's run by a guy named Galen Breen who's a real really talented guy uh, and he was in Smyrna at the time uh, and so we uh, we did this record called Memphinati because he's from Cincinnati and I'm from Memphis. So, uh, yeah, was it called Book of Love? Was that the title of uh, the album? Beat of Love. Beat of Love. Yeah, Beat of Love. Uh, and uh, there's some there's some good songs on there. I, I like that song. And that's where we, he and I wrote Last Laugh that the box tops recorded. Uh, but, uh, we never, we just, uh, we made it and we never even got a record deal. We just kind of just uh, put it out there ourselves and had it on CD Baby or something like that. But we never, we really should do something with it someday <laughs> yeah. because it's got some good stuff on it. Uh, I really like a lot of the songs that are on there. Um, and we've written a lot since then. In fact, we talked about going and doing another Memphinati album. Uh, that would be fun. Um, and we've written some songs recently that might go on there. We wrote a lot of instrumentals that uh, that I'm trying to figure out how to get pitched to uh, film and TV, that would be really good, you know, backing tracks for action scenes and stuff like that. Yeah. And sports, sports things. Uh, but, um, and then um, the box stops just did a tour called the Where the Action Is Tour with Paul Revere's Raiders Without Paul. It's because he, he passed away last year, I think, and um, and the Love and Spoonful and Chubby Checker, who was just a blast to work with, and we did a big jam session on the last night of the tour and played the twist with Chubby Checker, which was really fun, and uh, uh, Gary Puckett and the Union Gap were on it, and um, so we we did a you know, made a few stops in the Caribbean and ate a lot of food and had a good time. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes around town, you also, you perform solo. And do you still do the, the Gary Talley and Road Leading Home gigs too? Oh, well, that band, our, our keyboard player, Dave Hoffner, got seriously ill. He got some kind of immune deficiency disease and he, he couldn't play anymore. And so we just kind of stopped doing doing that Garitelli in the Road Home thing. And I miss doing it, but because uh, I loved working with Charlie Morgan, that drummer that used to play with Elton John for so long, and he yeah. he's like my favorite drummer. But um, we uh, we haven't played that, and I... I'm beginning to feel like I want to start another band to play around, you know, around here, but I haven't done it yet. 
but uh, I had another trio that we called Triple Play with Ron Krasinski and Kent Burnside, and we played we played a few gigs, you know, like the Puckets and uh, and Mickey Ruse there in Franklin and uh, a few places like that. That was a lot of fun too, but not really doing anything now. One other collaboration I wanted to ask you with, because I'm just such a huge fan of these people, is uh, Sam Moore of Sam and Dave oh, sure. and Billy Preston. And yeah. uh, how did you end up working with those two? Well, um, I knew somebody who was playing with Sam Moore, and I had been a big fan of Sam and Dave forever. and. Uh, but I never worked with them before. And then, um, you know, I honestly forgot who called me for that gig to play with Sam Moore. But it was in, um, it was in the late 90s or mid-90s. Uh, and I don't remember. Anyway, but we did, we, uh, we did some great, fun gigs with, with Sam. I loved working with Sam. And his wife, at Joyce Moore, started managing Billy Preston. And so we did a bunch of gigs with Billy Preston be, through the, the connection with Sam and Joyce. And that was probably the most fun musical thing I've ever done is play with Billy Preston because he was just such a joyous presence, you know, on stage. I mean, it was just like, uh, it was almost a transcendent experience, you know, just to play, to play with him. And uh, because he's the most musical guy, you know, in the world, I think. I mean, he was, he was so inspirational and so talented and just brilliant and just loved to play more than anybody that I've ever seen, I think, you know, it just, it was just wonderful. Uh, and I loved working with Sam too. He's still around and, and still singing really good. Yeah. So we're, we're getting close to the end, but when you, you know, entered the first recording studio or, or played some of those early shows with, with what became the box top, would you have thought that like 50 years later, you're still doing it and still doing it at that level, traveling the country, you know, playing venues like the Ryman? And uh, did you ever No, I, I had no idea. I thought it was just something I was gonna do for fun for a, a year or two. and. Uh, I was, well, actually, when when the box tops took off and hit the road, I was in uh, at Memphis State, which is now University of Memphis, and I was going to be a clinical psychologist. That's what I was planning on doing, you know. And uh, so I didn't graduate, uh, didn't get my degree, but uh, I went on the went on the road instead but uh, I no, I never dreamed that I would be doing this for you know 50 years because I just had my 70th birthday at the Ryman when we did our happy together tour at, um, show at the Ryman and uh, it's just I can't hardly believe it you know I can't believe I'm 70 years old for one thing and uh that I've been doing this, you know, music for 50 years and plan to be doing it a few more years, you know. Yeah, and uh, you're in good shape, so I, I don't see anything getting in the way of, of you doing that. And, uh, well, thank you so much for spending this past hour with, with me here and sharing all these great stories uh, oh, thanks, of your career and I wish you just all the very best in health and music and everything uh, for the for the future to come and I hope we get to collaborate on a few things in the future. Sure, too. I'd love to. That'd be great. <laughs>
All right. Well, thank you so much. Well, you're very welcome. My pleasure. This was the 21st episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. We taped it at Buzz Kaysen's Creative Workshop Recording Studio in Nashville. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. Until next week. Thank <laughs> you.